Welcome to the Complexity Premier Podcast. I'm your co-host, Yingyi Yan Cheng. And Yingyi is joined by Christopher Joy. I'm a portfolio manager at Coolabar Capital Investments. Our retail brand is Smarter Money Investments. Um, and a big shout out to all the listeners. Uh, your support is really greatly appreciated. Uh, we've had an extraordinary number of downloads uh, that have allowed us to rise, I think, to the top five ranked podcasts in the Apple iTunes rankings of Australian investments podcasts. So this is a special episode where we will kick off with a market update from Chris before we focus on the US-China trade war and the implications for markets as we see them. So Chris, what happened to markets and our portfolios in May? Sure, Yingers. Yeah, May was a solid month uh, return-wise. Uh, we had outperformance over benchmarks across the board, driven by our asset selection alpha and also some credit hedges we introduced in the face of general credit spread widening uh, as we saw the trade war intensify. I think it was noteworthy that the Aussie investment-grade credit and the ASX hybrid markets massively outperformed global peers in May for a range of different reasons. These included the unsurprising election result, the uh, expectation of RBA rate cuts, which have reignited the search for spread provided by relatively low risk assets. We also had supportive domestic supply and demand technical drivers, particularly uh, there was modest issuance and we continue to see allocations to credits and the growth of ETFs. There is, uh, in addition, evidence the housing correction uh, may be over. Uh, and finally, we're increasingly focused on the likelihood that S&P affects some credit rating upgrades on bank-issued securities. In the investment grade space, uh, we were able to generate asset selection alpha from cheap senior and tier two bond issues uh, that we saw in May, which subsequently mean reverted um, with the credit spreads on these issues, set generously wider fair value and thereafter normalizing. Uh, One example is NAB's $1 billion tier two issue. That priced at uh, 2.15% above the quarterly bank bill swap rate. Our models had fair value at around 190 basis points or 1.9%. And we saw the spread on this bond subsequently tighten into around 1.98% above BBSW or bank bills uh, on the bid side. And that drove capital gains of about uh, 0.7% in price terms. While the overall um, Aussie IG or investment grade floating rate note market returned um, only 0.17% in May. This was actually substantially superior to the negative returns on FRNs that we saw in the US and Europe on the back of spread widening. We run both uh, long duration and short duration strategies and in our our insto only long duration active composite bond strategy in May, we returned 1.85%, um, and that was about 15 bips ahead of the comp bond index, which in May uh, returned 1.7%. All those numbers are pre-fees um, that are negotiated on a case-by-case basis with insto investors. So over the year to May, in our active comp bond strategy, we've returned 11.6% pre-fees versus the comp bond index's 
Beyond our alpha, the index's return was driven by a huge reduction in long-term interest rate expectations as RBA rate cuts were priced into markets uh, coupled with a significant increase in global risk aversion. Another source of alpha for us in May was the ASX hybrid market for those strategies that we run that can allocate uh, to that sector. The hybrid market returned about 1.2% in the month alone, inclusive of franking. Now, prior to the election, we shifted about $100 million of extra capital uh, into hybrids on the basis of our forecast that the coalition would win or if Labor won, the Senate would be controlled by senators who were rapidly opposed to Labor's franking policy. And of course, we advised our investors before the event that we wouldn't be surprised if ScoMo won comfortably. So in terms of price action, We saw prior to the election, hybrid spreads were around 356 basis points above bank bills. That's a five-year major bank hybrid spread. And post the announcement, we've seen that compress into about 326 basis points. So we've seen about 30 basis points of spread compression. Back in early 2018, before the ALP's franking policy announcement, five-year spreads were trading at about 300 basis points above bank bills. So we have actively traded this market, obviously, and we actually took our exposures to record levels when spreads widened out to 400 basis points above bank bills in May and November last year, and then again in February this year. And then we've banked profits as spreads have normalized. With the threats to franking now well and truly behind us, we've obviously seen that 30 basis point spread compression. And we expect that uh, spreads will likely tighten to well inside 300 bips above bank bills to levels last seen in mid-2014, so long as the trade war uh, doesn't seriously derail global growth. Uh, Yesterday, in fact, in early June, we saw that Standard & Poor's have flagged, we believe that they are likely to upgrade Australia's economic risk score. This might sound dull and boring if the Aussie housing market stabilises. And this is very, very important for bonds, um, as I'll explain. Now, in April, listeners will know that we... I think we're the first in the market to forecast that the housing correction was over. If the RBA cut rates, uh, it looks like uh, it is about to cut rates. Uh, It's rates day to day, in fact, when we're recording the podcast. And uh, there's already data to suggest that the housing market is indeed turning. We've seen very strong auction clearance rates in Sydney and a clear stabilisation in prices in Sydney and Melbourne since the election. In fact, in the CoreLogic daily index data, we've detected the first increases in Sydney house prices since the election and indeed the first increases in Sydney house prices since they started rolling over in mid-2017. Assuming S&P does upgrade Australia's economic risk score, which has actually been a forecast of ours for quite some time now, that's very important for the hybrid market. The four major banks' hybrids uh, would have their credit ratings upgraded from double B plus to triple B minus, which crucially lifts them out of the high yield category and places them in the investment grade bucket where big instos can allocate a lot more capital to the sector. When hybrids lost their investment grade rating in May 2017, they used to be rated triple B minus and went down to double B plus. 
we saw sustained selling and assuming that's reversed we would expect to see the insta bid come back long and strong into the market that's basically the market summary for may ingers so here at Coolabar, we've been doing a great deal of due diligence on the trade wars, you know, engaging with government officials locally and overseas and numerous Chinese and US intelligence, defense and political experts. And we believe the probabilities have shifted materially from our previously held benign modal case in which China and the US resolve a deal towards something which is much more polarized or bimodal, so outcomes involving a deal or no deal, with each contingency appearing just as likely. And we think this could elevate volatility, uh, which could beget investment opportunities. So the changing probabilities have emerged as President Trump seeks to straddle two conflicting internal schools of thought on how to manage the challenge posed by, you know, the rise of a totalitarian one party or increasingly one person political system that actively seeks to dominate its domestic and foreign counterparties, including America, to secure and sustain its aspirational primacy. Is that a fair summary, Chris? Yeah, I think it is, Yingers. Um, certainly one forecasting complication is that nobody really knows uh, which of these two camps Trump will actually commit to. I remember his longtime secretary once said that the only constant with Trump is his intrinsic unpredictability, uh, which his former advisor, Steve Bannon, described as his only superpower. To be sure, in 2018, we did uh, hold the view that a transactional or corruptible, you know, market-focused, myopic and mercurial President Trump, who does appear desperate uh, to impress his contemporary Wall Street and corporate oligarch mates, uh, would strive to secure a Pyrrhic trade victory so that he could promote that heading into the 2020 election. And we assumed that this deal would be struck irrespective of whether it addressed the growing concerns China hawks like Steve Bannon had regarding the Middle Kingdom's predatory behaviours. And by predatory, I think Bannon means the systematic program China has been carefully developing for decades to slingshot both its economic and military development to the point where it emerges as a, a global hegemon. Now, this, of course, involves uh, Yinger's appropriating foreign technology, intellectual property, and military expertise to enable China's ascendancy, while the state, uh, of course, unfairly subsidizes local enterprise to obtain global market share from offshore competitors uh, who are playing by the rules of you know, what is arguably a completely different game, that is open, fair, and free trade. And there's nothing we know but remotely bilateral about these interactions. China does not allow foreign entities to easily invest in its domestic domain, nor can they extract any exclusive know-how from their activities within her territories. The relentless unilateral appropriation of foreign states' comparative advantage is, as we'll discuss later, a means to assuring uh, I think, the objective of unquestionable primacy. You mentioned that. And it's accompanied by what is an exceptionally sophisticated and pervasive counter-subversion and offensive information projection capabilities, which are designed to thwart any perceived or actual threats to President Xi's supremacy. Now, our 2018 interpretation 
of Trump's more mercenary character, character traits did reflect the prevailing wisdom in the economics or markets community, which we uh, internally call the Goldman Sachs consensus. And that obviously insinuated that getting a deal done was more important to Trump than the substance of that deal. Yet whenever Trump has deviated from the path espoused by the Goldman Sachs consensus, he has in fact been punished by markets through negative, sometimes savagely so, price action of the likes that we saw in 2018. Is that how you're seeing it, Ying Yi? Yeah, Chris. I mean, the Goldman Sachs consensus appeared to be validated over the last 18 months, you know, by Trump and his Treasury Secretary Mnuchin, who have sought to repeatedly assuage investors that some kind of deal will be struck. And investors have become arguably emboldened by the efficacy of their own reflexivity, whereby, you know, ticker tape uh, Trump has been forced to sprout much more conciliatory and deal-friendly rhetoric every time he's hawkish, you know, hyperbole precipitates a market meltdown. It's certainly hard to recall any US president or any leader of any other nation state who's been more beholden to the vagaries of their stock market than Trump, uh, who boasts on Twitter every time the Dow Jones hits a new high watermark and clearly adjusts his behaviours in response to the index's fluctuations. Well put, Ying Yi. Now, before we move to consider the alternative hawkish paradigm inside the White House. It is worthwhile stressing, I think, Yingers, that the stereotype of Trump is an intensely impatient, hedonistic, and short-term optimizer, who's never really displayed much appetite for immediate sacrifices to obtain advantages in longer-term strategic games. But I guess we have to ask ourselves the question, is this analysis wrong? Perhaps Trump's visceral short-term optimizations have the ability to subconsciously or subliminally lead him into much more nuanced and strategic long-term solutions. I mean, how, for example, did he manage to pull off one of the most historically unlikely presidencies? Is just this a random chain reaction, a random uh, sequence of coincidental events that are solely attributable to luck rather than skill? Open question. Here I think it is sobering to reflect on the observations of one of uh, Trump's arch nemesis, which was or is the former FBI director, James Comey. And he uh, said, quote unquote, I don't buy this stuff about him being mentally incompetent or in the early stages of dementia. Comey said that, quote, he strikes me as a person of above average intelligence who's tracking conversations and knows what's going on. I don't think he's medically unfit to be president. Now, the reason I belabor this point is it's important because it's precisely what the geopolitical hawks are asking of Trump. They want him to weather near-term financial and economic storms to preserve America's own hegemony, which is predicated on, as we know, the rules-based liberal democratic order where everyone broadly competes for free and fair trade on equal terms without extensive state subsidies and or interference. Right, Ying Yi? 
Well, Chris, this is exactly Steve Bannon's eloquently articulated doctrine that for the first time is gaining significant bipartisan currency throughout the US. You know, according to what we call Bannon's Hawks, China is engaged in a multi-decade mission to wrest economic, military and hence geopolitical supremacy away from the US and its allies. The intensity of this mission has been significantly accelerated under President Xi, where Xi is regarded as the most powerful and ideological Chinese leader since Mao, and in 2018 removed all term limits to establish a perpetual legacy. Engaging with leading Chinese cultural, political and intelligence experts, we have arrived at the conclusion that one cannot rationalise China's decision-making model using a logical financial markets or Western democratic framework. So, Chris, would you like to describe that model to our listeners? Yeah, sure, Yingyi, I can have a crack at that. Um, I think President Xi and his acolytes are convinced that China has always required an existential challenge, if not an outright kinetic conflict to galvanize her people to unite as one to overcome the alleged threats to their existence where in this framework xi himself the chinese state the chinese communist party and the chinese people are increasingly fused into a single indivisible entity if you study the works of the likes of uh, John Garner, who we'll talk about later, really arguably one of the world's best China analysts, what you learn is that President Xi's purported endgame is a utopian nirvana, or so-called socialism, that is never actually obtained. Now, this aspirational objective is, however, the unifying ambition that binds the Chinese people together in support of maintaining the primacy of the CCP, which really becomes a vehicle to preserve the power and control of several Chinese dynasties, the current apex of which is represented by Xi's reign. Put differently, communism with Chinese characteristics is a control system to perpetuate the power of ruling elites. The most recent incarnation of which is, of course, princelings like Xi and his fellow conservative hardliners. Uh, Now, one can juxtapose them against the so-called treasonous reformers in the Middle Kingdom. And these conservative hardliners and Xi understandably perceive the West, liberalism, democracy, civil society, capitalism, and free markets as a direct and inherent threat to their totalitarian longevity. Xi's real endgame is survival, a necessary condition for which has to be struggle followed by dominance. Now this requires China's vast and Byzantine intelligence gathering and influence apparatus to engage in continuous and unremitting campaigns to acquire and burnish competitive advantages in the commercial and military spheres. Simultaneously, they have to crush internal and external threats to Xi's regime through both positive and negative incentives. This characterization doesn't remotely do justice to the complexity of the subject matter, and I would advise readers or listeners to take time to absorb two iconic 
Times on this subject, authored by one of the world's best China analysts who I mentioned earlier, uh, John Garneau. And he's got a really good essay on this issue over at Sinocism. It's a website, it's available for free. Um, specifically, he writes about uh, Xi's ideology and another on Xi's business model over at the Monthly, which is also free. Now, John has spent large slabs of his life living in Beijing. He was previously Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull's China advisor. And interestingly, he also led the Australian government's interagency report analysing the extent of Chinese espionage and influence operations in Australia. And I think we concluded that Garneau's research facilitates several important insights in the context of the current trade ructions. The first is that any deal that involves strict monitoring and surveillance of China's adherence to terms that require it to operate on a level playing field with the rest of the world is seemingly incompatible with Xi's mission to secure unassailable dominance that insulates his regime from internal and external risks, uh, unless Xi can still find some credible way to cheat, which we'll return to. Uh, importantly, uh, Garno argues that Xi's mission is not yet complete. Indeed, the end game is arguably 10 to 20 years away, and he knows that China cannot currently win by innovating independently. Uh, and she regularly bemoans the paucity of creativity and ingenuity in the Chinese economy, uh, which, of course, is the inevitable result of its non-market incentive structures. Now, does that make sense to you, Yingyi? Look, I think this could explain why at the 11th hour, China redlined huge sections of the trade deal. Trump thought his team, led by hardline trade hawk Robert Lighthizer, had negotiated. This deal would have forced China to engage in unprecedented reforms that would directly constrain its ability to dominate global industry and secure President Xi's Made in China 2025 objective in the short to medium term. We nonetheless believe that President Xi could have signed up to this deal while buying himself more time to secure unquestionable technological, economic and military leverage over the rest of the world. But indeed, you know, miscalculating Trump's reaction function may have had catastrophic consequences for the tenability of Xi's project. Wittingly or unwittingly, Trump is the first leader of a modern nation state to genuinely push back on China's quest in what ostensibly appears to be a credible and strategically thoughtful fashion. As one analyst opined, it could just be the entirely random co coincidence of madness and strategy in Washington. In the past, when China retaliated against attempts to staunch what it regards to be its exclusive sovereign right to compete with the rest of the world, global counterparties have backed down, and this included prior American administrations as well. It's plausible that Trump initially approached these negotiations with a simple mental model that free and fair trade was ultimately in everyone's best interests and something that should not be terribly difficult to convince China about, you know, especially given his persuasive powers, which Trump seems to consistently overestimate. Uh, but as yet, you know, China has relentlessly resisted and retraded through 18 months of negotiations. Uh, Trump might have inevitably come to the conclusion that China is, in fact, will never sign up to any fair trade deal, which Trump has slowly come to understand. Chris? 
Mm, yeah, I agree that this could explain why Trump has shifted course, though I guess we don't know if he really has, and become more partial to Bannon's hawks. Accepting Xi's dynastic aspirations, I think we know that Bannon doesn't believe China can be credibly convinced of the merits of it changing course. Bannon's doctrine perceives China to be an insatiable economic predator that we've mentioned already. And it's, uh, according to this view of the world, moving irresistibly up the food chain every day as it consumes other nation states' competitive advantages until it supplants the Western capitalist free trading order as the preeminent operating system. The conclusion of this process is that the West is subverted to becoming a slave servicing Xi's legacy. To borrow the words of one Chinese scholar, free markets belong in a communist cage, quote unquote. Hawks like Bannon think that Western appeasement of China has allowed it to modernize its military and technological industrial base much more rapidly than any analyst projected 10 to 20 years ago, uh, putting it within a decade or so of its final hegemonic destination. Along these lines, the Goldman Sachs consensus has propagated American and Western decline as financial market elites accept suboptimal deals with China that you know, transfer enormous wealth to them personally in the short term, while um, I think Bannon would say ceding US wealth creation opportunities to China over the long run. I think Bannon firmly believes that uh, strategic time is running out. And I think he would say that it's vital that the West acts promptly in the finite window that it still has left to excise the Chinese quote-unquote cancer from the global economy. Now, this project is, which has gained unprecedented traction, I think, amongst Democrat and Republican leaders during Trump's term, therefore advocates uh, what has come to be known as decoupling the Western and Chinese economies as the least worst option given China's irreversible course. Under Bannon's doctrine, tariffs actually become positive because they work to reverse China's competitive cost advantages and encourage China's rivals to develop more substitutable products, products and services. And I think this is why we're hearing more and more about shifting essential supply chains out of China into alternative domains. At a minimum, it means aping, I reckon, Japan's China plus one supply chain model, which involves having fungible substitutes for Chinese services in the event that the latter will seek to exercise uh, geopolitical power through its trade-based dependencies. Now, we have seen this evolution in the development of redundancies in rare earths mining and refining here in Australia, and also in critical infrastructure manufacturing returning to the US and its partners. There's a great chart um, on this subject from Torsten Slock at Deutsche Bank, and he shows the change in US imports uh, since mid-2018. And you can see um, that the US has imported a lot less from China, but it is importing a lot more from the rest of the world as it substitutes away from China. So I think in summary, Yingers, Bannon's doctrine equates economic stability with national security, which has become an increasingly common call to arms in Washington. And once you understand China's intent 
to this way of thinking, economic and national security are absolutely inseparable. It is accordingly imperative to minimize economic dependencies, uh, which China can exploit for national security purposes. What do you reckon about this, Huawei? Well, I certainly think that one striking illustration of what you're talking about has been the radical change in the global approach to dealing with Huawei. Uh, you know, one of China's national champions and the world's largest telco equipment manufacturer, which is metamorphosed from being heralded as the next Apple to a core national security threat to all Western states. The coordinated and demonstrably strategic efforts by the current US administration to aggressively exclude Huawei from all key Western 5G networks and ban it as a commercial counterparty for all US companies will effectively destroy much of its foreign business. While this might just be a high-stakes negotiation tactic, it could also signal that the balance of power in Trump's capricious mind is shifting towards his hawks. Another indication that the Goldman Sachs consensus was losing momentum materialized in early May. So after China retraded at the last minute on its commitment to a comprehensive trade deal on the weekend before it was supposed to be signed, um, unexpectedly excising vast sections of the agreed document, Trump retaliated uh, with surprising speed and savagery hiking existing tariffs from 10% to 25%, and then further committing to impose a 25% tariff on all Chinese exports to the US. Up until that point, this had been considered a nuclear option that might irreversibly damage US and Chinese relations. So while this was an arguably justifiable reaction, it was also humiliating for President Xi, who presumably expected Trump to fold and agree to some sort of compromise in the name of belatedly getting the long-promised deal done. And we've heard consistent reports that the Chinese thought Trump was deeply enamored with his great friend Xi, who likely assumed he could run Putin-style strategic rings around the blinkered American. Chris? Yeah, it's interesting to think about. Um, if Trump follows through with the final tranche of tariffs, the Chinese may have been snooked into a decoupling ambush prepared by Bannon's hawks. They may have hyped, I guess, internal expectations for an entirely fair trade deal that they bet she would never buy into. And that might have been precisely the recalcitrance that they needed to eventually convince a frustrated Trump that there was not in fact, a benign bargain on the table. And I think if there's one thing Trump should have learned over his many years in business, it's the telltale sign that inconsistent retrading means your counterparty actually has no interest in agreeing to an accord that benefits both parties. And I think there is definitely a case here that President Xi has systematically miscalculated his foreign policy since he came to power because he's overplayed his hand time and time again. He has managed to ostracize most key actors and near neighbors across the Indo-Pacific region with his imperial construction of numerous uh, militarized artificial islands in the contested waters of the South China Sea. Likewise, I um, think Xi's ultra-assertive efforts to project military parity with the US, you know, through publicizing those new stealth fighters and bombers, aircraft carriers, uh, and numerous nuclear submarines. That's only fueled su uh, extreme suspicion in Washington 
uh, creating China hawks of most Democrat and Republican politicians, at least in my view. And you know, finally you have Xi's recent refusal to sign up to a free and fair trade deal with arguably the most commercially mercenary president the US has ever had. And that's, you know, I guess, inadvertently unleashed a bipartisan campaign to economically marginalise China. In the opening salvos of Trump's trade war, I think China attracted a fair bit of global sympathy when confronted with Trump's bellicose trade talk and unilateral tariffs, especially from other nations facing similar rhetoric. Yet, I think the affluxion of time has seen Western public opinion coalesce around the idea that China is indeed a malevolent predator and animated by case study after case study that's documented China's espionage, theft and malignant global influence. Um, so I think after years of indifference, the sudden change in the Western zeitgeist, apropos China, has been stunning. Although it is, I think, Ying is swinging now back in their favour following uh, yet another round of uh, unpredictable unilateral tariffs that Trump has threatened the likes of Mexico with, um, and indeed you know, Australia. Um, it was speculated in the New York Times that he was a bee's dick away from slapping tariffs on Australian steel exports. Thankfully, we avoided that outcome. The change in Trump's trajectory, I think, traces that of Australia's former PM, Malcolm Turnbull. Now, Turnbull was a longtime cinephile and a skeptic of US intelligence. And he actively lobbied for many years to have, excuse me, um, Huawei included in Australia's NBN, alongside Foreign Minister Julie Bishop and Trade Minister Andrew Robb. This was despite repeated official rejections of the idea by the Australian intelligence agencies and the Labor Party, which has historically been much more sympathetic to Australia's largest trading partner. Even after receiving direct briefings with intelligence official officials, Turnbull uh, staunchly maintained his view that Huawei was not a serious national security threat, and he put this view on the record. Um, on countless occasions. In 2011, he also argued that China's rise posed no credible military concerns for the West and that its activities in the South China Sea were benign. This, um, unfortunately for Malcolm, preceded China's establishment of its artificial islands to explicitly serve as military bases emblazoned with gun and missile batteries and equipped with ports and runways to service destroyers and fighter jets. The th interesting thing is, Ying, is that during his tenure as PM, and presumably after accessing the most sensitive Western intelligence, Turnbull morphed into a China hawk, and he has since publicly implored countries like the UK to block Huawei from their 5G networks because of, surprise, surprise, national security risks. It is um, indeed hard to imagine a more striking 180 degree turn. So what does this mean for investors? Well, we still think that a decent trade deal could be struck by Trump if one, markets go free fall and the Goldman Sachs consensus prevails, and or two, she realises he has made a horrible mistake by unwittingly precipitating decoupling, which will only serve to sap China's main source of power and influence, which has been its incredible prosperity extracted from trading with the global capitalist system. 
The option still exists for Xi to sign up to some sort of comprehensive deal, but then gradually over time back out of it, which is the most optimal path given Xi's objectives. We still therefore attach a 50% probability to a deal being done one way or another, which is lower than our previous estimates that anticipated a central case involving clear resolution. I think that's right, Yingers. And I guess on the other hand, we assess that there's an equal probability that no deal is done, either because firstly, China miscalculates and refuses to sign up to one on the basis that she welcomes a nationally unifying existential crisis, or secondly, because Trump becomes enamored with the political benefits of being seen to be tough on China and saving the US economy from being disintermediated by its most important geopolitical rival through the aforementioned decoupling process that we've explained to the listeners today. To be clear, we absolutely believe that China is fundamentally miscalculating because there's no way it can win in taking on the West in a global trade or, for that matter, kinetic war today. Supply chains will irreversibly shift to China's distinct detriment, and it will be permanently locked out of the international trading system that has powered its historic prosperity while being denied access to the innovation, technological progress and competition that I believe is essential to sustaining its long-term productivity. The probability of this second scenario has also increased since, quote-unquote, sleepy Joe Biden, a notorious China dove, has entered the presidential race and argued that China was, quote, not bad and, quote, not competition for us. This has definitely emboldened Trump to wedge Biden on America's China choice, which Trump, I think, suspects will play out in his favor at the 2020 election. Now, hopefully folks can get a sense of the fact that this is a highly fluid environment and we will continue to adjust our decision-making probabilities in real time as new information emerges. And that's all for this special episode. Uh, Please listen to the disclaimer. Thanks for listening thus far. And if you have any feedback, please feel free to email us. This podcast does not provide financial advice. It is not an invitation to invest in any financial product and the information in it should not be relied on for any decisions. All views expressed represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or a recommendation and should not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit the moneysmart.gov.au website to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.